Welcome to The Patient Physician, a space for doctors to explore their physical, mental, and financial wellness. Your peers and industry leaders will destigmatize institutional perceptions while redefining success, money, and personal care. Get ready to pull back the curtain, because here, you are both patient and physician. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Patient Physician. I'm your host, Paul Smith. And I am your co-host, Chris Fulbright, and we're excited to welcome Donna Lee McBride onto the show. Hi. Yes, thanks for joining us, Donna, uh, and thanks for making time to uh, be here today. You actually have a pretty full calendar outside of uh, your full-time gig, plus your uh, side work and comedian and raising money and being a mother. So uh, we appreciate your time. Before we dive in, let's set the stage for the conversation and just high level, we'll talk about your career, what you're doing now, and then you can explore and tell us a little bit more. Um, sure. Donna is the Director of Business Development at NAU Urology Specialists and is responsible for the growth of the practice and fulfilling the provider schedules through marketing, community outreach, public relations. Her role also encompasses the health of the practice by helping the management team to keep morale high and staff motivated and doing their best, which is always very, very important. She's also the co-host of the Armor Men's Health Podcast and one hell of a funny comedian. Aww. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so honored to be part of your podcast. It's so professional compared to ours. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christy's here. That, that we're doing something right, I guess, or maybe it's too professional. But uh, well, you have to remember, she is a professional comedian. So any right. of those could either be uh, meant as funny or truth. We just have to figure know. this out as we go along. That's right. Yeah. I could be lying. That's right. She's going to use this somewhere. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how you got to the role that you're doing now. And, and where I really want to take this, and I think where your expertise lies is, is in, in helping private practitioners. And so part of our audience, we see a, a very, very few, and we'll go there, that actually go out and explore private practice anymore. But mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about your story and, and, and even what you're working on now. Sure. Well, I have a really funny patient physician story to start off with, if I can <laughs> okay. go into that. When I was in college, I knew I wanted to be a drug rep, and I worked at a doctor's office my entire career in college. It was Dr. Wallace's office in San Marcos at Texas State University. One, Get him, cats. Yeah, exactly. He was uh, the best primary care physician, so sweet, so patient, so kind, super ethical, amazing person to work for. And he, he specialized in primary care, but he also specialized in orthopedics and head trauma. So he's a very serious man, and that's where I think I learned, you know, what an ethical physician is and who I would want to work for if I worked in a medical office. And he was just outstanding for the four years that I worked for him, but very professional, very kind, never joked around. It was a very serious setting as you can imagine me in college being serious, but it happened. Um, <laughs> I was his medical transcriptionist and I was a whiz. I mean, before we had AI and all the stuff, right back in college, I was uh, typing a hundred words a minute with absolute positive perfection. Like I never made mistakes. And he just loved me as a college kid employee who did all of his transcriptions. Anyway, one day he came to me and he said, um, I need to talk to you. Can you come to my office? And I was like, oh my God, am I in trouble? So I sat in his office. It was the first time I'd been called into a boss's office and I was terrified. Even though I knew I was doing a good job, I showed up on time. I was a stellar employee in college. And he said to me, and he's like I said, he's a super patient, kind, professional man. He said, Donna, you've been typing everything wonderfully. And I said, okay, why am I here? Like, what did something happen? And he said, well, when I talk into the microphone, I have been saying the patient presents with pussy like lesions. 
And I was like, <laughs> okay, what, how, what are we doing? Like, what are we talking about? And he said, pussy's not a word. And I went, what are you saying? And he said, spell it out in your head. But he was too professional to tell me to say it or spell it. <laughs> and then I really realized I had been typing the patient presents with pussy-like lesions. Anyway, I hope you bleep that out. But that was going on for four years and he was hysterical, but he was like the, the epitome of patient physicians. So I thought about him when I thought about this podcast. So I wish that all physicians could be as patient as Dr. Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> now, how, how long had you been typing that up before he chose to? It was like, Three and a half years. It was almost before. <laughs> Didn't you get suspicious after a while that so many people came in with the same situation to see an orthopedist and not, you know, OB-GYN? Yeah, that's a weird head trauma, Donna. I, Strange head trauma. He was also family care, though, in urgent care. But I remember thinking, oh, good Lord, the, the people reviewing his records were probably stunned. But anyway, <laughs> I was going to kick out of that story. But anyway, back to me. Um, I... Started, like I said, in that doctor's office, then I became a drug rep. I watched the drug reps coming and going. They're so professional and attractive and smart and kind. And they had lots of money. And I was like, I'm going to do that. So I got a job um, out of college. Um, I went and got a sales position for one year because that's what I was told to do by drug reps. You have to have sales experience. And then I became a drug rep. And then uh, my dad, who is a physician assistant out of the Air Force, one of the very first physician assistants in the country, uh, that kind of parlayed me after I became a mom, stayed home as a mom for a while. I thought I have to get back into medicine. So I went into family care at Victory Medical Center here in uh, South Austin. And I worked there for seven years as marketing director, then clinic director, and always in a business development administrative kind of position. And then I joined my current group also seven years ago, um, NAU urology specialist with Dr. Mystery and handling all the back-end things and like like you said, you know, the growth of the company and the health and the wealth of the company. So I think in a nutshell, that sums it up. So you ended up there. And, and I recall several years ago when we first met and, and he had brought you in, he and I were talking actually about his plans for expansion. Because at that time, he was just a sole practitioner in a single office. And, and I'll never forget, he, he said, I'm not really expanding and planning to try to get into other offices to grow my income. It's more of a defensive move because private practitioners are just having a, a difficulty competing with hospitals and, you know, bigger groups that are coming in and buying them up. So it was, it was really more defensive to try to just maintain. Now, I don't know if that was the origin of it and where it's gone from there, but do you find that that's was was the case then? Is it the case now? Are you still, as as a private practice office, um, you've grown substantially in that time frame? Mm -hmm. What what's the headwind there? Well, I think yeah, it's absolutely still true uh, today. We not only are a small practice trying to survive, we are watching these solo practitioners fail, and it's not you know of their own doing. It's we blame the all evil insurance plan that, you know, we're, we're um, reimbursed 8% less every year. And that for a small company and small practice, that's huge. I mean, we just can't survive on insurance alone. So a lot of models like ours are staying small and then having a really, you know, robust retail sales opportunity for the practice um, instead of the patients going out and finding really cheap supplements that are probably ton of, you know, have a ton of fillers. We have a really nice supplement line. We have a really nice retail line for what we do. We have pelvic floor physical therapy 
on site and they have some retail items that they can share with the patients instead of the patients uh, going to Amazon and trying to figure out what they need. Um, we've got sex therapy on site and those therapists as well. They have really nice retail options that make sense, but I'm kind of jumping all over, but we also align ourselves with offices with a similar mindset. So we only try to connect with other offices like oncologists and orthopedic guys or, you know, endocrine specialists um, that are similar in size and um, at least privately owned. Um, What we give our providers and staff is the option to have a say so in the clinic. So we just hired two brand new urologists and one of the two came to me and she said, I knew I wanted to join a small practice, um, independently owned practice, because all of my mentors in my residency and all of her programs said uh, private equity is the devil. And you don't want to join a group that's owned by a private equity group. You want to join somebody who's a little smaller or at least is privately owned and not nationally owned because you'll have a say so. So, you know, right from day one, she's got to say so in the practice and what happens to finances and staffing and things like that. So we we feel like that's really important for a small office or a small practice today to keep in mind. They want to keep the control of their own practice um, instead of having a big corporation tell them what to do. Unless they just want to show up and just collect a paycheck. There's a lot of physicians who want that. So I, I get that too. Yeah. I think that's the the tough spot is that the money that the those firms can can bring in and, and uh, private equity can, can throw it at smaller practices seems very attractive. And, um, I've, I've watched, uh, cardiology practices and, and, and some other folks that we've talked to go through that similar thing. The biggest concern was not so much around the money, but then what happens and how the practices run after, mm-hmm. um, private equity doesn't get into these games to deliver patient care, right? You know, they get in to make money. And, and so that's attractive, but then relatively shortly after, the sale and closing and funding and all that, it's, it's pretty quick Mm -hmm. that they start implementing changes. And so I, I I can see that and that doesn't allow a physician to really be a physician. They're, they're they're worried about how to uh, deliver that care and then also continue to make a profit for the now, you know, private equity owners. And they usually will take the majority share, right? So it makes it tough, but how you've come in and added all those elements is um, interesting. How do you determine or really for the, for the audience, if they have a private practice and, um, urology is one of those that, that you can, um, we still see quite a few people that can go out, maintain a private practice. There's a few other specialties. Some are staying, you know, big and staying in hospitals or going to work for these bigger, uh, private equity groups. But how do you select what the best addition is? And it's not just, you know, okay, well, that's just going to be an extra cost. It's a distraction. It's not a key line focus for us in a, in a profit center that serves our patients better. Mm-hmm. How do we select those items or those people or both? Yeah. The, the things that the new additions that you bring to the practice. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it has to make sense, obviously financially, but that's not our motivation. We like I, the, the example, the best example I have are the supplements. Um, we have, I don't know, 40, 50 supplements that you know, we pick and choose. The f- providers are really involved with that. So that's where it's kind of different too. I ask the providers, which brand do you care for? Is it a clinical grade supplement? Is it something that patients can or can't get at Walmart? And is it 
$3 on the shelf. It's probably something that they, it's not very healthy for them. So we have all these factors, but we give the providers, whether it's our MDs or APPs, we give them the choice and get them really involved. And I think that helps with the health of the practice because they feel involved. They feel like they make a difference and they know that we're listening to them. And then when we add services, obviously for urology, it has to make sense. We have a really robust men's health line as well. So a lot of urology offices don't want to mess with that. They don't want to have their hormone patients and hormone optimization, male patients coming in for their testosterone injections because it's not a big moneymaker, but we look at it and, you know, it's a tiny moneymaker <laughs> and we're helping the patients. So it's not that, you know, we're losing money on it and the patients, don't, they, it's like a one-stop shop. And that's what I think is really important for smaller practices to find a way to be more of a one-stop shop. You want to send out your referrals, obviously, to specialists, but you want to keep as much in-house as possible um, for the health of the practice, for sure. Well, it seems more sensible from a patient perspective, too. I, I, you know, I don't have to keep going around and go to this physician, this physician, this place. So being able to get more from, from one location, um, that, that does sound very defensive, as Dr. Mystery had pointed out, doing some of those things. So... We see a lot of uh, residents and fellows that are coming from training and, and in, into practice. And a common theme that we will hear is that, you know, we never get any kind of training around the business of medicine. And so therein lies the the lack of confidence to, you know, run a practice. They're great physicians. They've gotten great training. I don't really know how to run a practice. So what's the best way, if there's a way to sum that up, for them to get started? Well... Gosh, I can't talk a lot about how they can become entrepreneurs as much as Dr. Mystery. And I know he wants to do your podcast, so I'm sure he'll be happy to, to talk about all that too. But I can talk from a, what I think they should have in residency is a marketing 101 uh, class for the physicians. I've met so many physicians in my career in Austin that have absolutely no people skills. And we've all met those physicians, right? They are never taught how to talk to other offices admin staff, their own admin staff. Like there's, I think there should be courses on not only marketing, but the business development on how to react to situations within their practice. Uh, we've got a couple of really new doctors and I've talked a little bit about this with them and they just, I can tell they, they're like, well, what do I do? Like, we're, and I'll tell them, we're going to go marketing. We're going to go meet these doctors. We're going to go talk to all these people outside in the community. And they're kind of wide-eyed like, okay, let's do it. But they, they don't know what that means. And I, then I realized, oh, wait, I have to kind of take a step back and explain to them, okay, we're going to talk to a doctor's office. We're going to bring them lunch. You're going to interact with all of the people from the front desk to the back office. And um, I think it's such a simple idea that somewhere in residency, I feel like there's a place for it, but I just haven't seen it yet. So maybe I should start Donnelly's marketing <laughs> for physicians in residency. But I think that's really important to understand because they just kind of clam up when they get in front of people. Yeah, I think you're right. I think so many times we see physicians that are trained on the medicine side and there's that other part of whether it be the people part or running the business. I was just meeting with someone at one of our campuses and he's in charge of a lot of that. And they're actually putting together a leadership council mm -hmm. for people that are considering private practice. Mm -hmm. And he said, we're literally having to go all the way back to teach about finance, about signing a rental agreement. Where do you buy machinery? What do rep relationships look like? How do you stay from a compliance? And so, Donna, what I, I think what you just described is something that is needed in the community, especially for the people that are listening to this podcast. Right. You know, they may be residents, the fellows starting out and trying to figure out what does that look like? What does somebody like Adana mean to our firm? When would they hire someone like you? At what phase as they're considering that, 
when's a value add for, for someone like yourself to come in? I think after they determine what they want to spend, obviously on marketing and business development, you know, whether it's six, eight, 10%, they have to take that into consideration. I started as practice manager with this particular group. Um, and I think what Dr. Mystery and I found as we go went along together on that journey was that I couldn't handle all the marketing and business development and run the practice and pay the bills and hire staff and make sure the supervisors were happy. It's just, I think as a new physician trying to figure out how to start their business model, I think they come out of residency and they're like, you know what, I'll just pay somebody to do that. I'm going to have a manager who does that. Well, they have to keep in mind the manager is going to cost $80,000 or a CEO is going to cost $150,000 a year. The marketing person isn't even on their radar yet. Well, they had to hire two front desk people at $45,000 each per year. Um, they've had to hire the LVN for $85,000, $95,000 a year. Insurance is reimbursing so much less every year. I think that they're they're not even considering those things when they start. And then they think it's just going to be handled for them. Um, but when they start in practice, they have to have a heavy marketing presence, especially if they're a small practice, because there's a bunch of little small practices that have already taken over the market share. And if they're brand new and they don't have a foothold or plan yeah. or somebody to implement that plan, you know, they just might as well not even try. Yeah. So I think it's really important that they decide, you know, what size practice they want to join. And, you know, if they do want to be solo, I have a friend right now, he's a solo practitioner and he can't make it. He said, I have to sell my practice. I had a partner and she was not a good fit. So I had to let her go and I can't survive. I can't pay my rent. I can't pay my staff. And wow. that's so sad because yeah. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we were saying, oh, that guy's a doctor. I bet he's loaded. And now we're like, oh, that guy's a solo doctor. How's he paying his bills? And I'm not joking. That's that's exactly what's happening in the market now. So I think doctors really have to evaluate what steps they want to take, especially out of residency, because starting your own practice, unless you're like a wellness guy, I know a wellness guy he came out as a PCP, he's a solo guy, but he started a really heavy, heavy presence in wellness and integrative functional medicine. So he's got a cash pay model along with his primary care physician model. So he's kind of covering the cost a lot better than, than somebody just coming out saying, I'm just going to accept insurance to pay for everything. Because it won't. You know, we've seen where um, the primary care market has created a model that is uh, concierge, where they'll reduce their patient load and have an annual fee. Do you see the specialty of urology potentially going that direction or or other specialties? Um, I don't think so because we're so procedure heavy. I know a lot of PCPs who went into the MD VIP model or something really similar. I've met a lot of APPs who have taken on clinics where they um, are doing that, a cash pay model. It makes a lot of sense, I think, as a primary care physician. As a specialist, I don't think so because you still have to have those big procedures and you have to be credentialed at all the hospital systems and all the insurance plans have to pay and cover it. But we do have something similar within our practice for men's wellness. If a patient doesn't have insurance, you know, we can still help that patient. And we have a program, the one we call, uh, we name the podcast after. So it's the Armour Men's Health program within our system. And if it, there's a patient in Texas who doesn't have insurance, you know, it's $150 a month. They have VIP access to their provider. So it's a similar program, but I think you really have to decide how much of that you want in your practice. And that only makes up a small percentage of our practice, but I don't think specialties can do that MD VIP kind of thing. But I, I think that it's really smart for a lot of PCPs to consider it because there are a lot of patients out there that'll pay $100, $500, a $1,000 a month to have 24-hour access to their physician by text or phone call and um, have that one-on-one -on -one time with their primary care physician. 
Gosh, it's not even 24 hour. I think most of us would be happy sometimes just get in within a, two weeks right? sometimes to see uh, the, our physician. So the backlog is, is increased and it, it also allows them to see less people. So you get more yeah. personal time, the time that you get with them. So I think that's where the success right. of that model is. Yeah. Those guys are only seeing like, you know, five to 10 patients a day because they're spending 30 minutes to an hour with each patient. Um, in a business model with insurance, like the majority of our practice, they have to see 16 patients to break even if they're lucky, and then 22 to 24 to make, you know, a little bit more to cover some costs. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm hearing numbers, depending on the specialty, anywhere from 30 to 40 that, that you know, is necessary to, to hit their numbers if they're on some sort of uh, model where they're receiving RVUs and really want to try to make some extra money. Um, they're having a hustle. Yeah. That's five per patient. If they're doing yep. notes and taking a breath between, you know, it's just, it's not healthcare. Right. Well, and it's contrary to, to really what they want to do. We see that and hear that consistently. Well, I have to go it this way and I have to run at this rate and patient doesn't love it. The physician, the physician doesn't love it. Right. And you know, they're running too hard. And uh, you mentioned a second ago, the Armour Men's Health podcast. So this is something you did to help others, but tell us how you got into that and decided to, to do this and, and how that's going. So the Armor Men's Health Show podcast is a radio show on local KLBJ in Central Texas on Saturdays at 3 p.m. And then we turn those segments into a podcast that we push out. So we've had, oh gosh, over 700 episodes now, over 150,000 downloads. Uh, we've had it for a while now, I think about four years but if I have any advice for marketing, it's find a really unique niche like we did for our marketing. This takes up about 90% of our marketing budget because it's not cheap to put you know, a radio show on and then turn it into a podcast and pay me and pay my show notes person and pay the producer at the radio show versus paying me to produce it on the front end. So it's a lot of moving pieces, but we get to brand our message exactly how we want it to. So we talk about everything that's men's health related, and we even throw in some women's health um, as well, because we treat a lot of women. But we did that. Uh, that decision was because we wanted to think of a really cool, unique way to market the practice and say whatever we wanted to say about it. And Dr. Mystery is an incredible educator. And you guys know him. He's just a, such an eloquent speaker. And in real life, he's the dirty one and I'm the clean one. But on the podcast, he has to be the clean one and I have to be the dirty one. So it's we form this really strong relationship where we, you know, we finish each other's sentences and we know what we're about to say and, and think. But it's a really fun marketing idea if you have two people who have that personality in your in your practice. But my advice there is to think of something that's super unique that people will remember, but still a way to really present your message about your practice um, in a way that's comfortable and makes sense for you. Did you view that as starting the podcast as more of the community outreach portion of your description and the, or the marketing to drive name flow back to the to the businesses? In the beginning, the, the podcast was used for community outreach because the radio show, the same thing. So the Saturday radio show, we saw pretty immediate ROI. Like we patients started hearing the show. Lots of people listened to KLBJ 99.7 FM and 590 AM. It's the only FM talk radio show in Central Texas. Um, and it's a lot of, you know, really awesome shows. And at the time Rush Limbaugh was on. So there's a lot of conservative shows, but there's also like hippy dippy gardening guy. Like there's all these, there's a really interesting group of people who listen to the show and they would immediately start listening because we had a really prime spot on Sundays and then we were moved to even a better spot on Saturdays. So 
we saw people coming in literally a week or two after we started the show. Like I heard the radio show. I heard Dr. Mystery sounds so smart and engaging. And my urologist is kind of boring. He didn't offer me supplements and he didn't ask about my lifestyle management. And he didn't tell me I need to lose 20 pounds and that my testosterone would naturally raise if I did that rather than me just getting injections for the rest of my life, you know? So all these very unique messages started coming in. And I would say that the podcast once those segments off the radio show were turned into the podcast, we started seeing benefit with people reaching out maybe, a, I don't know, a few months later, like we started getting lots of emails from people around the country because it started to take off. It didn't take off for probably about a year. Podcasts are tough when there's no marketing, uh, especially with a really popular radio show on the front end to push it forward. Well, you picked a, a, a good station. I'm familiar with that one, Heavy Men. Uh, did you have to do a lot of research? Are you, were you familiar with it? My advice would be to research all the radio stations or TV stations. Some um, I had some offices approach us um, within the last couple of years, and they, they were guests on our show, and they were like, I wonder if this is a good fit for me. And my advice to them was to really research. Do you have the bandwidth to record every week? Do you have somebody that you're going to have trained, like I did, on how to record the show at the office. So Dr. Mystery is so busy that we, ha I have to catch him between patients. Sometimes I'll set up all the radio station and podcast equipment in an exam room. And I sometimes pray that he'll walk by and give me 10 minutes to record a segment. And that's how it kind of got started is that we, we couldn't rely on us to find the time. So it just kind of, you know, what makes sense for the, the physician. Um, but I had to do a lot of training in the beginning to, to try to make that happen. But I would, my advice would be to, re, you know, decide, do you like radio? Do you like podcasting? Do you think your audience is more TV based? I have, um, a friend who's at an ophthalmology group and he was really considering radio show and podcast. And he was asking me a ton of questions and he went back to his partners and they decided as a group, we're a really cute, cute, young, up and coming ophthalmology group. Let's do TV. And I was like, sweet. If that makes sense for you, that's, you know, that's the best option. But it's also expensive. <laughs> it's just podcasting is not that expensive. You can do a podcast. Um, you can record it on your own. You can push it out there. You can use like a platform like Buzzsprout or I don't know what hosting site y'all use. Um, I think it's Squadcast, right? Squadcast. Mm -hmm. yeah, and push it out. But when you go to TV radio, I, you know, I think that's an office that if an office is just starting out, I don't think that's the best fit for them. I think they really need to maybe, you know, start with a podcast for a year or two, get really comfortable with it. Then they can take that to a radio station and say, you know, this is what we have, a really popular podcast. And can you give me a great deal on a weekly radio show? Or, you know, how can I parlay this podcast into something on the news once a week? So that's, I guess, my consideration, uh, my advice for consideration for new new practices. You stress a lot on marketing, which I would guess most physicians that are trying to go into private practice, they, they consider all the different elements. I need to have a front desk. I need to have a office manager. This, like you check those boxes. I'm not sure that the marketing makes it to the top of the rung. So I hope that, that, that those that are listening, take that away, that marketing at any level for any business, you're in business. That's the first thing you've got to have that piece, right? And you, one of the other things you pointed out is, is you need to be consistent. So you can send something out and it's not going to just answer things. You might get a couple of replies, but it's not going to answer your prayers to, Hey, we're, we never have to do this again. It's got to be consistent and planned out and having that a part of, it sounds like your entire budget, not your entire budget, but having that planned out needs to be part of how you uh, plan for your practice. 
For sure. And for smaller offices starting, um, I don't want to forget to say this, there are options where you don't have to have a full-time marketing person. You can hire a part-time marketing person or a group. Like there's one in Austin called Link Medical that's run by my friend Haley Carter. And she will work for with three or four specialists that are completely different type of types of specialists. And she'll work 10 hours a week for you, 20 hours a week. She'll just, you'll, you can just pay that kind of person, the physician liaison a fee to do a marketing event for you. So there's so many options for new practices, especially smaller ones with really small or non-existent marketing budgets where you can do these types of things. You can literally pay somebody who's super professional engaging and will represent your practice as if she's a full-time or he's a full-time employee and get those business cards out to all the doctors in Austin um, because you're the new, you know, orthopedic knee replacement guy. Like you, you can't just expect the business to come to you. And I think physicians think out of residency. I'm so awesome that all these people are just going to refer to me. <laughs> They're just going to walk in the door, right? All I have to do is buy the furniture yep. and people will just start the parking lot. I'll probably need to get a valet. That's, it's going to be, right. I'm going to be so busy starting off. Yeah. Yeah. And Dr. Mystery, um, he's told me a million times when he started, it was just Dr. Mystery. Uh, his clinic person, Liz, and a front desk person. And he spent every minute of every hour that he wasn't seeing a patient in front of a primary care's office. He's buying cookies. He himself, not the marketing person because he couldn't afford one yet. He was visiting every office in Austin. And then he'd come back to the office and see a patient. Then he'd go back out and see more primary cares. And then he'd come back to the office and see a patient. So, you know, that's a struggle. You, you, you either have to figure out if you want to dedicate your time and efforts like that as a new doctor, or if you want to pay somebody a small part-time wage to do it for you and, and focus on, on patient care, assuming it's coming in the door. You think there's a consistency of, of what drives people like Dr. Mystery or even some of the successful private practitioners to go to that extra effort? Because it's, it's not just being a physician and like Chris said, coming out of training and into practice and that's all I want to do. There's, there's extra, a lot of extra. So what drives a person to, to do that and put in the extra effort to, to, have a private practice? I think it's, it's, you know, obviously how they're raised. It's a mindset. Dr. Mystery though has an MBH and MBA, like he's very entrepreneurial. And I think a lot of physicians think they're entrepreneurial, but he's super unique in that respect and that he's got the training and drive. I mean, I think he mentioned if he ever retires from medicine, his dream job would be consulting for big medical groups where he can go in and, you know, really evaluate what's going on with the practice and how to fix all of the the little things and big things. But I think that it's just, you know, a specific, if you know, you're a shy guy, like we have two new doctors that are awesome, but I know that they probably, they haven't had time to think about business yet. So we're doing it for them and hopefully they'll learn everything they can and decide in a few years if they want to stay with us or go start their own business model. But I think that it's just something you're born with. I mean, I hate to be cheesy, but <laughs> I think, I mean, you know, a lot of doctors, you know, that they're not all go-getters. Personalities vary, <laughs> but you know, that, that it, it is definitely a, a key difference of, I can be a great physician and maybe I'm not a, a people person. So I think that's probably something you need to address and confront as well. I want to be in private practice because of the control and the way I want to try to deliver healthcare to patients. But if I'm, if I'm also not of the personality or the mindset or acumen, you know, I don't have an MBA, I haven't exposed myself to those things. Find somebody that that can help understand who you are and what you want. And you said uh, a second ago, and I hope I don't get in trouble with Dr. Mystery, but you said a second ago about being a consultant. So, you know, I think you have done that a little bit 
for some other firms where you come in and just kind of help them evaluate. They've done some things, they're off and running, but maybe they just haven't turned the corner. They're not as profitable. They're not as successful. Um, whether it's you, where can someone go to get pointed in the right direction to fix and tweak some of the things? Uh, I think it's as easy as Googling medical liaison or, you know, like I said, that group in Austin, Link Medical is the one I'm thinking of. There's there's many of them, but that's one of the better ones, but they can certainly start there. I think word of mouth, Dr. Mystery recruited me from Victory Medical because he came to the practice. So a good example is if you're a physician, a specialist, you're, you find a really good primary care group that you work really well with and kind of dig around and, and ask the questions. Dr. Mystery uh, was in a position where he was kind of going between I, I, I'm too, I'm getting too big for an office manager, but I'm not quite big enough for a CEO. So that was kind of where he was at when I met him. And he was asking me when I worked at Victory, you know, what do you guys have in upper management? What do they pay? What, what do benefits look like? What does profit sharing look like? Well, he had so many questions for me that I could give him an idea of what we were doing at that medical group. And he kind of modeled, you know, some things here and there. He kind of took the a la carte pieces and now we have exactly what we need and in, in, in all the different management positions, we have so much more staff. We started with 20, 25 people when I started. And now we have about 60. So it might not sound huge, but that's you know huge for us. You know, one of the things you, you've talked about marketing a lot, Donna, um, but what you just mentioned, having 60 people working for you, that's a whole different skill set. Right. And, and I know that one of your roles and responsibilities, something that that I've seen in person being at y'all's offices is keeping the morale high, keeping the staff engaged in that culture. Can you share that? Like we've talked about marketing, we've talked about getting things in, it, hiring people and keeping the employees on the same track and moving forward. Is you've talked about how busy the physician is seeing a client. How do, how do you work with Dr. Mystery and the team to not leave the employees behind in such a fast paced uh, environment? It's as easy as a calendar. Um, I know it sounds kind of silly, but we have this really nice HR software that we use and it tells us every day who's, I mean, these are, it may sound silly to doctors, but it tells us every day whose birthday it is, the anniversary, how many years the person's been with us and I'll text our providers. Hey, it's so-and-so and I'll with the providers who is at the location of the employee having the birthday or the anniversary. And I'll say, Hey, so-and-so's anniversary is today. So-and-so's birthday is today. Dr. Mystery is incredible. And our other doctors are great about taking a minute to go give a hug and a thank you. And we really appreciate you. And then we support them with little gifts and gift cards. And those things are so important. And I think that the new physician coming into practice thinks that he or she might be above all of that or too busy for all of that. That will make the world of difference. If the employee sees the doctor took two minutes of their day to say happy birthday or thank you for being with me for five years or two years or one year, you know, I think that that goes so far. And I know that when I pass out goodies and make sure the physicians remember to say something, the employees, 90% of the time, I'll get a message or a hug or a thank you, or that really meant a lot to me. And I think that really helps. Those little tiny acts help with longevity for employees. Um, but it's a, it's a constant reminder. You cannot forget anybody. <laughs> I forgot somebody once and it was terrible. But you have to really stay on top of that. And you really have to get the physicians involved. As management, you have to get the physicians involved because you don't want that, that doctor who's so scary that they're not approachable. There's other areas that you have uh, gotten into personally. And uh, we were actually, in fact, I, I started out the conversation with mentioning that you also do some uh, stand-up comedy on the side, which was fantastic to watch you. And uh, you are a very funny person. I, we really genuinely enjoyed it. Oh, but thanks. 
what we came for was regarding a charitable event and it was for regarding cancer. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm really curious. I mean, I know it gave you an opportunity to stand up, do something fun. And, um, you know, Dr. Mystery was there and which I think was really cool because clearly he's there to support you and, and be part of that. But how did you get tied into that? You know, I think a lot of times there's, there's opportunities, events that we tie into that, that motivate us to, that we're connected to. What was your connection with uh, regarding cancer? Well, I was having lunch with a friend, my son's friend, his mother and I were having lunch and she said, Oh, I'm part of this group called regarding cancer that it was that easy. And I said, Oh, that's cool. And she said, we're thinking about putting a comedy show together next year. This is right at the end of COVID. She said, when everything lightens up more, you know, we want to put together a comedy show. And my son said that your son said that you are a comedian. So that's how that got started. It's an incredible little group. And if, you know, you have a patient who has unfortunately come down with cancer, they're a nonprofit group that pairs your patient as a physician, your patient with one of their patients who have a similar or the same type of cancer. And that person becomes a mentor. But that was just kind of an accident. Honestly, that was that was the second year I've done that show. And then I hope to do the one next year and, and help them produce it. But it's you're finding your unique talents and adding them to your day to day things at work, make it you know a little more bearable when we deal with things that are so serious like prostate cancer and kidney cancer and bladder cancer with our patients. But, but yeah, thank you guys for supporting that group. It, it was awesome. And um, hopefully there's many more years of that nonprofit to be around. It was very, very moving. Uh, you have this like huge swing of emotions for one minute, you're laughing your ass off. And then the next minute you're like really humbled by what people have gone through. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I, I see that there's an inline connection where now you maybe have a place where you're not just delivering news, but you're also maybe delivering a, a solution to, to deal with that news to your patients directly too. I mean, that's, it's gotta be a source for, for you to be able to share now. Yeah, for sure. I think it's an amazing group that not a lot of people know about. So to bring that many physicians together, I was super excited. Um, but you know, I was the seventh funniest mom in America per Nick at night. So <laughs> <laughs> at Nick at night. Carries that scorecard. Use that. That's in fact, and that'll be the link in the in the show notes. <laughs> Seventh funniest. Dr. Mystery, so when are you going to stop using that? I said, um, I can use it till I'm dead. Like that's my. That's right. It's like a doctor. That's in perpetuity. That's, that's right. right. But that's like a doctor saying, oh, "I was the first to use this particular robot in Washington." Or so. I mean, it's just it's it's going to be my thing forever. So. <laughs> right. We don't even use that machine anymore. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't I matter. Was the first. <laughs> I was the first. <laughs> How did you get into comedy? What was that? Uh, what was that like? What you? It was. It was that I was a stay-at-home mom. I was drug rep, like I said before. Then I became a stay-at-home mom for a while, and I went through a really, really awful bout of postpartum depression that I didn't expect because I loved being pregnant. It was the best, coolest thing in the world. I felt amazing for the nine months I was pregnant, and then when my child appeared, all of a sudden I came down with the worst postpartum depression. And it was so crippling and awful, and I. It was that that point in life where I think we've all been there. You, you, you wake up and you go, I'm going to do what I want to do in this life or I'm not. <laughs> so one of my big dreams was to be a stand up comedian. So I started going to cap city comedy and doing open mic nights. And I had a very unsupportive husband at the time. And he inspired a lot of jokes because he was, you know, he's real country and did not like what I was doing. he's like, where are you going now, mama? I mean, just things like that. And I'm like, I'm going to do comedy by myself in a nightclub. It was not a good fit. Um, but then I ended up give, submitting my tape to tape when we had tapes back then 
to Nick at Night because I saw on TV they were having a contest for funny comedian moms. And I, six months into my stand-up attempt at Cap City Comedy and the open mic nights, I hadn't even gotten a real gig yet. I sent in my videotape of me on stage doing an open mic night. That was probably hideous and awful, embarrassing. But Nick and Knight called me right after they got my tape and they said, we have 20 spots and we filled the 20 spots for the semifinals, but we're going to open one more spot for you. And I was like, because I'm cute and I have big boobs. Like I had no idea what that meant. Why are you, why are you doing that? Cause I had no experience. Yeah. Cause it's Nick at night. Yeah. Of course that makes sense. <laughs> And it was true. That's what they're looking for. I found out later it was, in fact, true because I had no experience. But then I ended up going to, to L.A. and did the contest. And then I made it to the top 10 finals. And then I made it to the reality show TV show thing. And you all saw part of that bit at, at the show. But it was a really humbling and awful and exciting and amazing experience. And I love that I have that background. And now I get to do this podcast and I get to be a guest on shows like this. So it's been fun. You know, I think doing something like that, where you just stand up in front of essentially all of your fear and all of your dreams at the same time is, is, uh, empowering in a way that the normal day-to-day stuff of putting together, going and walking into doctor's offices, introducing yourself. Sometimes that's, that in itself is very difficult to do. I, I don't want to go do that part of the marketing. I don't want to walk in somebody's office and introduce myself. Believe it or not, that that feels embarrassing to people. So that's harder. So if you just overdo it and put yourself way out there, then the rest of that makes it really easy. I think it's great that you're still out there creating different experiences for yourself. And and then it still, again, kind of ties back into the the practice and, and keeps things fun. You know, we um, talked uh, about marketing and and some of the other headwinds and declining insurance reimbursements. Where does it go from here? What do you see besides what you've already addressed coming up for people that are thinking about going into private practice or already out there? That's a big question. Um, I don't know. I commend any doctors coming out of residency who wants to make the attempt. I mean, it's just so hard. I, I hate to, I think, feel like I've been really discouraging this whole time, but I just wish people <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Join private equity. I said it was the devil. I was kidding. <laughs> it's the good one. It's the good it's the devil. devil. It just depends, I suppose, on the, the physician. I mean, I know a lot of physicians that didn't go with it. We tried to hire a lot of physicians you know, several, and they went with a bigger group or they went with a different city or they went, you know, with just a different model. And that's hard. And it hits our ego like, wow, what's wrong with that? It's like dating, right? You're like, well, I, I thought it was great on our first date. What, you know, you, I'm pretty too. You know, we don't get a second date. <laughs> like, what is that about? But then when you realize it's not for everyone and you have to find the right fit. So if you're, you know, coming out of residency, find, you know, spend hours and lots of plane trips and find the right fit. We've interviewed people, Thank God for Zoom because we didn't have to fly so many people in, but we've, you know, we're still interviewing people by Zoom for, you know, want to hire more doctors in the near future. So um, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question other than, you know, just absolutely do all of the uncomfortable things that you don't want to do to figure it out. <laughs> so don't pick the first group that says, here's half a million dollars a year. We're going to pay you a lot and you're, we're going to own you. <laughs> so you know, decide. Yeah. It's the fine print that binds us. Yeah. Right. And maybe that's what people want. They want to be owned and they don't want to make decisions. And that's probably why we lost some candidates that we thought would be a good fit. But if you're the kind of physician that's coming out, um, you know, be, be aware of what you're walking into and ask all the questions. And I would ask, I mean, this is kind of more 
than what you've asked, but I would ask for their financials. Like we're really transparent about it. Here are all our financials. This is what it looked like last year. This is how we split the cost. This is what our front desk person costs. This is what the medical assistant costs for you. This is what, you know, this is what the pen and the paper and the ink costs are. And we pay this much for bills. I mean, ask those questions. And then that'll also help the physician decide if they really want to take on all that, you know, as a small practice type of provider, or if they're going to, they don't want to deal with it. They're like, nope, I want to be in a big practice because I don't have to worry about any of that crap. I think it's pretty interesting that you share financials up front. I mean, certainly it's quick pro quo in that situation. Like, you know, the transparency, uh, yeah, the transparency during the recruiting process. That's a, that's an interesting model, especially that early on, you know, maybe, maybe we see that later. Yeah. And it's like, you go through the quote unquote, as you were talking about the dating recruitment process. And then towards the end is when a group says, by the way, here's our financial standing. Once there's more of a little bit of a a soft commitment. And I think what Paul's mentioned is y'all, y'all seem to do that earlier on. Right. Is that it's, appropriate? Is that correct? It's speed dating. So after we decide, OK, this person's a possible fit, maybe not the best fit. You know, we don't know that yet. But yeah, not right off, you know, like, hi, my name's Donna. Here's our financials. But at least, OK, I, I typically interview providers first up front. And then if I feel like they're a good fit, then I bring in Dr. Mystery and our practice manager, Liz, and we have a discussion. And then, you know, we talk to the provider. And at that point, if we all agree it's a good fit, then we're, that's where we're like, OK, here's all of our private pieces and parts. <laughs> Do you want to take a look okay. at that? So that's, I think, you know, give it a minute, but dating and speed dating, it's all, all relative, right? How much of that gets disseminated down from not just the providers, but to some of the other people in the practice? We are very transparent with the um, upper management team too. So they see all of the, um, every month we put out. So I know that I've talked to a lot of APPs that um, joined us and they're like, I've never been part of a practice where I got to see my peers' numbers mm. um, because we have a really heavy model on paying people. And, you know, it's an eat what you kill model with us. You get a, um, with, for our APPs, you get a salary up front, which is something the physician might want to consider if they're paying APPs. Do I pay them an annual rate, a flat rate, or do I give them incentives and bonuses? Like all of that's super confusing to a new doctor uh, when they get to the point that they need an APP. But the... Um, advanced practice uh, practitioners, they, they're very open and aware of, and it's kind of setting up a little bit of a competition every month. So they're like, Oh, my, you know, the nurse practitioner they hired last month, she beat me by $10,000 last month. What did she do differently? And then they have chats every week. And it's really important for our providers to meet once or twice a week. So another thing I wanted to impress upon new doctors, the patient physician is to be patient with meetings. You have to have the meetings. I think the doctors think, you know, they're too busy to have the meetings, but you have to carve out that time to meet with your support staff and your APPs and make sure everybody's on the same page and everybody's um, considering the growth of the practice every day. Not meetings every day, but considering it every day and having meetings maybe every week or monthly. And what's what's a good frequency for something like that? Is, is it monthly? Is it weekly or bi-weekly? How, how often do you do you do something like that? Or even do you do uh, a biannual or, or a annual like bigger kind of <clears throat> retreat as a group? Yeah, as a group, the whole practice, we try to do um, a big team building event once or twice a year. Um, our MDs, who are partners, most of them are partners to the practice, but all the MDs meet at least once a month. And then we have the new MDs who just joined us meeting with our APPs who meet with Dr. Mystery. So there's a weekly meeting for all of the APPs and the new MDs with Dr. Mystery where they can talk about cases and talk with the pelvic floor physical therapist and talk to 
you know, the in-house sleep coordinator, they can all kind of talk about what's going on for their week. But if we didn't do that weekly with them, it would be a nightmare trying to get that condensed into a meeting once a month, because then that's a four to six hour meeting monthly when we can just dedicate that time once a week for them. Hey, Donna, can I, I want to camp here real quick, because I think one of the things you had said, whether it be through the podcast or the radio show and being in the community, uh, keeping people's calendars full, right? It's getting the meetings, getting the name out there. When you have the transparency in a competitive type of environment like that, do you ever get pushback on, well, this person got more meetings or is it a round robin? How would you handle distribution of, of new patients or something of that nature? Um, or, or once they get to a, a certain point, is it referral based and they're more responsible for keeping their calendars full? The, the providers, you mean, keeping their calendars? Yes, the providers. Yeah, um, we are blessed in Austin, Texas, that there are so many people moving here that we just have full calendars. Like the new doctors right off the bat were full. Uh, their, wow. their clinics were full by 80% the first couple of weeks. And I'm looking at their, I looked at their schedules yesterday. They, they've been with us two months and they're 95% full already. So you, we really have to be careful because their, their meeting times are now being taken by patients patient slots because our staff means well, but they see, oh, that doctor doesn't have a bunch of patients in the morning from eight to nine. They must be drinking coffee. I'm going to open up that schedule. And even though we've told the staff not to do that, they mean well, right? They are right. like, oh, I see a blank spot. So we're, they're just filling. So we don't have a problem with that. And I don't think most specialists would in Austin right now in 2023. I don't know how that's going to look in a few years, but yeah, it's super important to make sure that time is uninterrupted meeting time with the staff and the support team for sure. Did that yeah. answer your question or did I kind of- Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't phrase it correct. I didn't phrase it well and you, of course, uh, answered it well. Thanks. Oh, now we're nice to your <laughs> We are not. You know, we, we, we Mystery started out as a private practitioner, just him. And now how many MDs do you have on? And you're, you said 60 employees total? Yeah, we have about uh, 58, 60 employees. We have six urologists, uh, surgeons. We have one interventional radiologist, which is super- rare and unique for urology. Most urologists would have to refer out. Um, Dr. Smith is our prostate artery embolization interventional radiologist in-house, and he does a bunch of other embolizations. But um, then we have five APPs, so nurse practitioners and PAs. We have two pelvic floor physical therapists. We have a sleep coordinator on site, sex therapy on site. And what am I forgetting? I think that's good. Oh, we have a health coach. I forgot. We always have a health coach, which is, and Dr. Mystery was the first to have all of these back in 2007 when he started his practice. No urology office in Austin had pelvic floor physical therapy and he did. So he was, you know, on the forefront of those and having a health coach was something pretty new, but new specialists coming out of residency when, you know, they have to sadly diagnose a patient with cancer or a life-changing, you know, altering diagnosis the very first thing they ask is, what do I change? What do I do? What do I eat? You know, how do I lose 20 pounds before surgery? Like you said. Um, so we thought it would just be so much more beneficial. It's not a big money maker for the clinic, but it's a big patient saver for the clinic, if you will. Uh, so things like that, the doctors need to really consider when they're coming out of residency. Do I just want just me or do I need all of the support? Um, it makes sense for us because other specialists have to send the patient out for pelvic floor physical therapy. They have to send the patient out to a wellness provider to figure out how the, what's the best diet plan for that patient to lose 20 pounds before their big prostatectomy or, you know, their big surgery that they have. Um, 
you know, where's the sex therapy person in Austin? Like all of those things, we've just brought it in house, whether it's full-time or part-time, it, it, it's totally available to our patients. And that brings in the patients. And Dr. Mystery talks a lot about the seven touches to a patient. You want to reach that patient seven times and they'll become your patient for a really, really long time, whether it's just... Are you trying to make Kevin Bacon your patient or the, the seven? <laughs> That's a different... You know, I think I'm related to Kevin Bacon because my great my grandmother, her maiden name is Bacon, and she was related to Sir Francis Bacon, and I know he was as well. So I'm pretty sure you're looking at a Bacon relative right here. All right. So Kevin, if you're out there, reach out to Donna and just like get the family lineage cleaned hey, up. Cousin. Was there was there a place where going from one to two to two to three, because sometimes adding the first one is very difficult, then, you know, maybe it's even more when you have the, the, the third. Have you turned the corner? Has it gotten easier? Has it gotten harder? More? I mean, things continue to evolve if you're looking to grow a practice like you all have. I think it's maybe a little easier for primary care physicians or dermatologists. They seem to be more available. Um, it is almost impossible for me to find a urologist. Uh, I've had to reach out to recruiters before, you know, 10 years ago when I was at Victory Medical, I could find providers on my own. I hardly ever needed a recruiter. I could find MDs. I could find nurse practitioners, PAs, just posting ads and reaching out to you know, different types of groups. But now it is impossible because there's so few specialists. Uh, if you try to find a neurologist to join your group, join your group a urologist, an endocrinologist, those very specific specialties are just super hard. But And you would think it'd be easier living in Austin. It's still hard. I still have recruiters helping me because I can't find the doctors. Um, so, you know, consider geographic desirability for sure. But it's still, it's it's tough in 2023. So I don't know where, what the advice is there, except to, to, to know that it's a long, painful process, but you'll eventually, you'll eventually date again. You'll find that person you want to date. Well, if, if people haven't caught the underlying theme and, and, and want to go in private practice, it sounds like y'all are hiring. <laughs> so, <laughs> contact Donna, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, we're not going to make this right. dating hard. Contact Donna. So, I'm third base ready. That, that's right. <laughs> Transparency. That's right. It's a key. Um, <laughs> we'll have all the financials at the end of the show. Um, you know, <laughs> As we wrap up, the, the, the name of the show is The Patient Physician, which we think means different things to different people. Tell us what you think it means to you and, and your experience in, in working in private practice and for those listening. I, I saw your, your words and followed your directions, and I even came up with a little something. I love the title, The Patient Physician, because I work with so many inpatient physicians, but um, I wrote a little blur about, I think the patient physician means that the physician needs to remember to be patient with not only the patients, but with the staff, the support team. I think it makes more sense, like I said, to schedule those meetings and to really consider all of the people helping you with your practice and be super patient with those people. Not, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that you need to be patient with your actual patients, but I don't think there's enough people telling the doctors to be patient with the people who are supporting your practice, your livelihood. I think that a lot of doctors too, if they're kind of too, you know, involved with being a doctor and not remembering that there's a support staff, I think they're unapproachable. And I think that the staff at that point kind of takes a step back and they're not as involved. But I think 
the doctors really need to remember the staff, the support staff really wants the best for not only themselves because they're getting a paycheck, but they do want the best for the practice. I'd say 90% of people are like that, right? There's those bad seeds that you might get that you have to um, detach from, but be patient with those people that show up every day, uh, that drop their kids off at school, that came to spend more time with you and your practice than they're spending with their own family. Be kind, be giving, spend a little extra money on every one of your people. And I think that's the the takeaway message I wanted to leave. I think it's amazing. I want to thank you. It's been great to, to see you and, and catch up. I hope that those listening have, have uh, gathered some key details and certainly add in that, that key piece of marketing, but where you left off um, taking care of the people around you uh, is going to be so vital. Donna, thanks so much. I, 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 I want to just say thanks for the, uh, invitation for the the event around cancer and, and bringing laughter into uh, a very serious world that we're all in. And uh, we, we all have family events that are going on and, and just let you know that, that we all appreciate what you're doing in the medical arena, but also just bringing uh, awareness and, and that connectivity to our community. Uh, we appreciate that as well. Oh, well, thank you guys. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored that I was a part of this and you guys are doing great work as always. And you're so kind and fun. So Keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Donna. This conversation was brought to you by Physicians Resource Services, a firm supporting medical professionals to improve their financial situation and pursue their personal and professional goals. The Patient Physician is produced in Austin, Texas. Editing and sound design are in the hands of the PodConnects Podcast Network. Please email questions or show ideas to info at physiciansrs.com.